Hey, church family, Jonathan here. Hope you're well. I'm here in the empty foyer of NAC, the new normal, at least for the foreseeable future. Hope you grabbed a coffee, a hot drink, maybe you're in your PJs. Be sure to show us via picture how you're doing church today. And it's another little way that we can connect with each other. I want to continue in this series in Ephesians on identity Instead of totally changing course and doing, you know, something on fear or something that would seemingly be more applicable, I can't think of a time where understanding our identity would be more important. And this letter to a church 2,000 years ago just seems terribly applicable to me. So um, if you'll allow me, uh, I have a lot to say today and maybe it'll go a bit longer, but if you're watching this in rerun, you can, uh, you know, skip ahead the boring parts. And if you're watching it live, you can always play on your phone. I will not know the difference. I'm going to assume though that everybody is just like attentively watching, just hanging on every word. Um, I don't suppose anybody remembers from a couple years ago when we did a a series on Ruth. Yeah. Uh, Arguably one of the best short stories ever written. Now, let me just see what you remember. Ruth is the hero of our story. And early on, she becomes widowed. And she has a widowed mother-in-law. Anybody remember her name? Naomi. And these two women are just left destitute and poor and absolutely alone in life and very difficult life. I don't suppose anybody remembers what the name Naomi means. Sweet. That's right. Her identity is daughter of God and her life was supposed to be sweet. But things get real dark real quick. And in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20, she makes this statement. She says, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because my life has become very, does anybody remember what Mara means? Bitter. She she changes her name, and in doing so, she's redefining her identity by her hurt, by her suffering, by her loss. You know, the worst day of her life becomes the defining day of her life. And in calling herself Mara, she's really choosing to have bitterness be her identity. And it's going to be the lens in which she sees everything else. So let me just cut to the chase, Nack. Are you Mara this morning? Are you bitter? Are there seeds of discontent in your soul right now that will eventually cause you to be Mara, bitter? Um, This just might be the issue that I have dealt with most frequently in ministry and in church and in my own soul um, and in the soul of others. And the text that we're going to look at today, uh, Ephesians 4, verse 17 to the end of the chapter, deals with this topic, I am forgiven. It deals with forgiveness and it deals with bitterness. And so maybe you'd even grab a Bible. If you don't have one, um, we're going to put up those verses. But while you're flipping through your pages there, let me just pastorally and theologically unpack bitterness for a second. Because 
bitter people are like archaeologists. They're just always digging up the past. If you talk to someone who's bitter, they're going to continually revisit painful circumstances. And it's like they can't move on. They keep, they're stuck. Um, you know, they'll be like, that's the day that my life was ruined. That's the day that my hope was destroyed. That was the day I became Mara. Bitter people remember the intricate details because they keep a record of wrong. First Corinthians 13 says that love keeps no record of wrong, but bitter people do. They keep a record of wrong and, and they'll revisit and rethink and recollect certain situations, not always accurately, uh, because bitter people sometimes lack perspective and they can obsess. They can name the day of the week and the time and the weather and what you were wearing and what your facial expression was and the tone of voice and word for word. Record of wrongs. Often we're most likely to become bitter against people who we love the most or that we respect the most. Our grandparents, our parents, our children, our grandchildren, our spouse, our friend, our, our church leader, our church family, because we have expectations. Um, we have high hopes for them. And yes, even we become bitter of God, don't we? Do you know people who are bitter with God? Naomi says, don't call me sweet anymore. Call me Mara. She's saying if God is sovereign, if, if he allows things to pass through his hands and he allowed this to happen, well, then he's complicit in my suffering. Um, I wonder if anybody watching right now is bitter with God. Sometimes bitter people can place themselves in the throne of judgment. You know, they can be jury, executioner, judge. They pass verdicts on people. They're the ones who say, well, I can see things clearly. I demand justice. I'm going to render a verdict because that's my right as a victim. And, and so how is it that people become bitter? Well, if I could just give you five ways that I've seen biblically and practically that people become bitter. Uh, you should know that the first four are illegitimate and the fifth one is a totally legitimate reason. And I think it's important to distinguish them. Number one, you wrongly think that you have been sinned against. Now, they haven't sinned against you, but you think they have. And so you've got your facts wrong. It's, it's a lie. And I could give you all kinds of uh, case studies, but I bet you have your own. Number two, some of you have unreasonable or maybe unspoken expectations that are unmet. So unreasonable meaning that you were expecting someone to say or do something or um, uh, disappointed by someone who said or did something and you've been hurt and you mourn and maybe you're even a little bit angry, but the expectation turned out to be unreasonable or maybe even more uh, likely um, unrequested or unspoken. I mean, how many know that this can happen all the time in marriage? Oh, these poor young couples who enter into marriage with assumptions about what a wife ought to be and what a husband ought to be because that's all they saw growing up. And so 
There's these unmet, unspoken expectations. Number three, often bitter people have been confronted or rebuked, but they were defensive and they were hard-hearted and hurt, and so they're, they're bitter. How dare you say that to me? And, and then the conversation shifts from the sin in their life to your tone, like, who are you to talk to me that way? Or I should talk about the sin in your life. I don't like the way you said that to me. Um, you did it with a certain look on your face or, or whatever the case may be, but it was probably given out of love. Um, it was probably something in your life that needed to be addressed, but the truth hurt and you became defensive and hard-hearted and bitter. Uh, number four, is it possible that you are jealous of them? Uh, Jesus' brother, James, says in James chapter 3, verse 14, this phrase, which is really insightful, he speaks of a condition he calls bitter envy and selfish ambition. This is not ambitious for the glory of God. This is ambitious for uh, the glory of self. You know, it, it probably starts when you're a kid. Your, your sibling has an ability. They're the cute one. They're the funny one. They're the academic one. They're the, the musical one. They're the obedient one. And you're frustrated by them. You're angry with them. Uh, you wouldn't say it's jealousy, but that's what it is. And explains why sometimes in your life, you're having this glorious season. It's a, it's a successful season. And it leads to a painful conflict with a friend or a family member that you thought would be glad for you. You know, you got into the college you wanted and now they seem upset with you. You've, you've met someone and fallen in love and you're really excited and they're really not because um, they don't have a relationship or, or it hasn't happened for them yet. You're engaged to be married and you tell people and you anticipate their happiness and joy and they're not. In fact, all of a sudden they're critical. Why do you always have to talk about them? Or, or why do you keep rubbing my nose in it? You say, we're pregnant and they're, they're struggling with infertility and they can't rejoice with you. Maybe your kids are walking with the Lord and you give testimony to that, but they're upset because their kids aren't. You get a job, you get a raise, you buy a house, you're healthy. Um, God uses you. All, all of a sudden, these good things become a bad thing because of bitterness or because of envy. And if you're bitter against someone for any of those reasons, I gotta say, the problem is you. The, you're the one in sin. Now, the fifth category is, is the group I want to speak to for the remainder of my time this morning. Um, and that is, you have been sinned against. You are legitimately a victim of someone else. Somebody has said something or done something or failed to say something or failed to do something. And this is, it, it's, it's now not you seated on your throne of judgment. It's actually God seated on his throne saying, that was wrong. What happened to you was wrong. And when we're sinned against, we have two choices. That's it, two choices, bitterness or forgiveness. Bitterness or forgiveness. There is no third option. So when you're sinned against, what do you do? 
Do you go to bitterness or do you go to forgiveness? Um, who has sinned against you? Who comes to mind even right now as we talk about this subject? Who's, whose name comes to mind? Who's, um, uh, whose face comes to mind? Who has abandoned you? Who has disappointed you? Who's wounded you? Uh, who do you blame? Uh, my dear, bitter friend, I want you to know that I get it. I get it. Believe me, I do. But you've got to know uh, that what tends to happen is when we have been sinned against, we tend to justify our bitterness. And if someone should show us in scripture that says, um, you're bitter, and we say, yeah, but they made me bitter. Here's what they did. Look, no one can make you bitter. No one can. They're responsible for their sin, but you're responsible for your bitterness. So what's in your heart this morning? Is it sweetness or bitterness? Is it Naomi or is it Mara? Please don't, please don't believe the excuse that because you've been sinned against, you have a right to sin. Um, that's, what, that's what bitterness is. It's responding to evil with evil, sin with sin. And so it brings us to this section of Ephesians chapter four. And so what does God say to those who are bitter? Stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. And don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. If you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. So six commands I get out of this for, for bitter believers. Number one, watch your gossip. Knack, this is so important. You know, when we're hurt, we prone to leak. Um, he tells us here in this passage to speak truth to our neighbor. And part of that is if you think they've sinned against you, you go work it out with them, okay? Like gossip is when we talk about people, we don't talk with them. And, and the Bible has nothing good to say about gossip. And, and just because you're hurting, it doesn't mean that there's some exemption clause. Um, you can't say things like, well, I'm just emotional. There, there's no excuse for it. And at no other time in history have, have we got such a, an opportunity with digital media and social media, uh, Twitter, Insta, Facebook, um, texting. You can now at your disposal have the biggest opportunity in history maybe to gossip as quickly and as widely as possible. And so some of you say, well, can I talk about it? Well, yeah, but have you talked to the Lord about it? Um, we call that prayer, you know? And it says this in, in Proverbs 26, 20, without wood, a fire goes out. Without gossip, a quarrel dies down. That means a conflict between believers is like a fire and gossip is like, would. And the more you talk, you're just inviting 
people. Hey, bring your wood. My fire's going down. You know, I need, a, I, I need to talk about this conflict with this person. And, and now it's starting to die down. So I want more people involved. So bring your dry flammables. And, and would it kill you to bring a jerry can of gasoline too? Because uh, gossip with me, listen to me, and then, you know, gather to my side of this issue. See, God's people are supposed to bring water to the fire. And gossip is just, it's dry kindling. So it doesn't mean you can't seek wise counsel. Some of you should. You should talk to your small group leader or an elder pastor, biblical counselor, maybe even a, a, a professional peacemaking ministry if it's really escalated. And Jesus actually lays out a really great, helpful process when it comes to conflict in Matthew 18. And it says, if there's a personal offense between two of you, you start face to face. And if that doesn't produce any result, you bring along two or three people, you start widening the circle in the hopes that others can help mediate. Now, somebody may be unsafe or um, untrustworthy. Maybe they've assaulted you. They're not, they're not trustworthy people. You shouldn't really be in the same room with them. And so the process needs to be amended. Wisdom calls for that. But uh, gossip is never the answer. It just is never the answer. It's a relationship killer. It's a church killer. You know, sometimes Christians have these gossip workarounds. They call them prayer chains. Um, please pray for Elder Susan, would you? She's a bit of a fill in the blank. Have you talked to her? No, I'm, I'm talking about her, so pray for her. How about I pray that you stop gossiping? How about that? So number two, watch your emotions. Number one, watch your gossip. Number two, watch your emotions. He says, don't sin in your anger. Now notice he doesn't say, don't be angry. I think that's important. Sometimes religious people will say, oh, there's, there's two buckets of emotions, one, one good and one bad. And well, there's not because God has all the emotions, doesn't he? Um, the question is not whether uh, the emotions are good or bad, but whether or not they're driving us toward holiness or unholiness. Um, and some will say, oh, anger, that's, that's a bad emotion. Really? Did Jesus get angry? Yeah. He got angry. Did he ever sin? Nope. You know, one of the most repeated verses in the whole Bible is found in Exodus 34, verse 6, and it's God's self-disclosure and revelation of himself. He describes himself as a God who is slow to anger. God has a long wick, okay? God gets angry, but man, you have to, you have to get him there with ongoing stubbornness and rebellion and hard-heartedness. And, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you and I can be like that. Um, it's not that we don't get angry, but we don't start with anger. So anger is a really powerful emotion, but it can actually be used for some constructive good, can it? We had a whole series this last summer called Holy Discontent. It's about righteous anger. You know, you think about the woman who founded uh, Matt, Mothers Against Drunk Drivers. She had a child who was killed by a drunk driver, a repeat offender drunk driver. And it looked like perhaps 
um, nothing would be done legally to this guilty drunk driver who killed her child. And she became angry. Is that okay? If somebody gets drunk and kills your child or if somebody uh, molests a child or somebody assaults a woman, do you think, do you think that makes God angry? I think it does. Um, it's wrong. But what she did was she took that anger and she founded Mothers Against Drunk Driving and, and she did something good out of the suffering that she was enduring. But here's what Paul says, don't sin by letting your anger control you. Number three, watch your clock. It says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. And maybe um, you're watching and you remember hearing that at a, at a wedding or somewhere else. You didn't know it was even from the Bible. Well, here it is. So in other words, don't, uh, don't let things extend or delay. It doesn't mean if you get angry at 4.45 p.m. that the countdown clock is ticking and you have to get it all figured out by sundown. Uh, what it does mean, though, is that he, you need to cool down. You need to pray, go for a walk, journal, uh, get your head on straight. Uh, yell at God for a bit if you need to, but don't bring more wood to the fire. Um, it's, it's, it's okay, but when you wait days, months, years, uh, it's like an untreated cancer in your soul, and it just grows and it grows. And so Paul tells us to watch, watch the clock. Uh, some of you, <laughs> some of you, sometimes so fear conflict that you've chosen bitterness over talking it out. And, and I have to watch that. Well, here's the impetus for, for point number four. He says, watch your enemy. Don't give the devil a foothold. And this is where Christian instruction is different than non-Christian instruction. It's if you're dealing with issues of bitterness and unforgiveness, and you're dealing with, you know, worldly psychology, Dr. Phil or Oprah, whatever, they're not including Satan in their response, but the Bible does. And the Bible says that Satan actually hates God and hates God's people, which means he loves it when God's people shoot one another, saves, saves him a bullet. And it also publicly damages the reputation of Jesus. This is, it's spiritual war. And we'll talk about that in a, in a future sermon. And then Paul says as well, watch your hands. He says, if you are a thief, quit stealing. Instead, use your hands for good hard work and they give generously to others in need. So, so what do you do with your hands when you're bitter? Do you punch something? Do you slam a door? Do you shove someone? Do you throw something? Do you jump in your car and slam it into gear and, and drive recklessly away? What do you do with your hands? Well, he says, watch your hands. Do something constructive, not destructive. Do something that helps others, that doesn't harm others. Don't grab your phone or your laptop and declare war. Watch your hands. Number six, watch your mouth. Some translations uh, call it corrupting or unwholesome talk. And this is, you know, the go-to verse for parents and youth pastors uh, about why you shouldn't cuss. 
Sometimes you'd think based on Christians' reactions to swearing that that was the unpardonable sin, you know. But in the context of this passage, it seems like it's something deeper than dropping some four-letter bombs. It's, it's in the context of relationship. He's saying, you know, it's not about you getting your hurt out, but imparting grace to those who hear. So now bitter people, they tend to uh, rewrite or revisit or revise history. You know, I'm going to omit the details of the story that paint me in a negative light. And I'm going to emphasize the details that paint them in a negative light. And, you know, I'm not going to speak the whole truth. Well, surely that's more damaging than a cuss word. Paul says, watch your mouth. Tell the truth about them. And here's Paul innocently sitting in prison and he could have easily been, you know, down with the Roman government. I'm sick of these uncircumcised spaghetti eating toga wearing weirdos, but that's not what he says. His life is harder. His pain is deeper. His grief is darker. His demonic affliction is on a scale that we can't even comprehend. And yet still his words are encouraging and life-giving. So how do people become bitter? Uh, I think Hebrews 12, 15 talks about that, that as Christians, we have to dig up the root of bitterness, uh, lest it grow and corrupt many, some translations say. He's, he's saying that bitterness has roots. I don't suppose anybody watching um, is a green thumb or, or maybe had a parent like I did who, who made them work in the yard or garden. Now, when you're a kid and you're asked to weed the lawn or the garden and you had bike riding to do or swimming to do or, you know, just being with your friends, uh, would anyone just, I don't know, like use the electric weed eater and just kind of whack them down to nubs? No, just me? Okay. Well, lo and behold, it wouldn't take that long and I'd look out the window on the lawn and what do you think was there? More weeds, right? Because weeds have roots and if you don't get to the roots, you just get more weeds. And forgiveness is that shovel that, that digs up the root of bitterness. So, so what Paul is saying is, is don't just work on your hurt or your anger or your temper, get to the root, get to the root. And the root is what? Bitterness. How many of you ever felt like, I thought I dealt with that, you know? And then it came back, kind of hit me by surprise and it feels bigger and, and worse than ever. Well, you, maybe it's because you didn't pull the root. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. And just returning to that analogy from Proverbs, without wood, a fire goes out. Well, bitterness is like the spark, right? You've been sinned against. You've been hurt. Um, there's, a, there's a spark. And you decide, I will not forgive them, or I, I won't forgive them right now. Well, now there's a spark. And that leads to wrath. Now you've got an honest-to-goodness flame going. And then through gossip, you're literally breathing on it. 
giving it oxygen. They did this to me. They said that they hurt me. And you're, you're, you're blowing on this flame and now add anger to the kindling that's caught now. It's not a big fire, but it could be. Well, now you add slander. Well, what we've got now is a, is a nice hot fire and you're stacking wood on it and you're dumping lighter fluid. And then along with all evil behavior, some translations say malice. Well, that's where it just becomes this uncontained wildfire. It just goes in any direction and it consumes any fuel. And this is where whole families get burned down and reputations get burned down. Churches get burned down. Um, it all started with a spark, right? It, it, it was just a cigarette flick out the window. Bitter people don't intend to burn down everything in their path, but the two options are bitterness or forgiveness, wood on the fire or water on the fire. And sometimes hurt people just hurt people. Sometimes hurt people hurt people. And the Holy Spirit knows what he's talking about, doesn't he? Like this, this book, this Bible, it's, it's not an old book. It's a timeless book. And it, it applies to us in 2020. So what do we do? Well, forgiven people forgive. It says in verse 29, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I know immediately in hearing this, you're like, forgive them. That's the water on the fire. I can't do that. I won't do that. Um, here's the truth. Of course you can't do that. You can't do that on your own. But by the power of the Holy Spirit, you absolutely can. Um, the Holy Spirit is the one who empowered Jesus to forgive. Folks, was, was Jesus ever sinned against? Yeah. Um, did Jesus ever sin against anyone in return? No. Did Jesus become bitter? No. Uh, how? By the power of the Holy Spirit, he, he's able to forgive. Jesus has now sent the Holy Spirit to live in his people. And we have access to that power so that rather than reacting out of bitterness, we can respond like Christ. It takes nothing short of a miracle for a bitter victim to forgive. And the name of that miracle is the Holy Spirit. Um, he's the one who will empower you to forgive. And if you resist him, it says that he is grieved. So friends, sin is not just breaking God's laws. It's breaking God's heart because God is not a law. He's a person. So what do we do? He goes on to say, be kind to each other. Oh, you didn't want to hear that, did you? Be tender-hearted, not hard-hearted, tender-hearted. Didn't want to hear that either. Forgiving one another. Oof, didn't want to hear that. Why should I forgive them? Well, it says, because God through Christ forgave you. Forgiven people forgive. And this has more to do with you and Jesus than it has to do with you and them. They probably don't deserve it. And neither do you. And neither do I. That's the gospel, right, Nack? The gospel is that Jesus did this amazing thing. He goes to the cross and he dies in the place of his enemies. 
And theologians will tell us that Jesus had uh, seven last statements on the cross. And one of them is this, Father, forgive them, forgive them. And, and then Jesus dies so that we could be forgiven. Aren't you glad that God isn't bitter against you right now? And it is, is it, is it not hypocritical for us to say, God, I'm so thankful for your forgiveness, but I refuse to extend that forgiveness to others. Because when we do that, what we're really saying is, Lord, I know the sins that I've committed against you are, are grievous, but the sins they've committed against me are worse. So, so I understand why you would forgive me, but I need you to understand why I won't forgive them. It's blasphemous, really. So let me just briefly, because um, now I, I suspect many of you are going to have questions, some thoughts on what forgiveness is and then we'll touch on some things that forgiveness is not, and then we'll wrap up. Number one, forgiveness is canceling a debt owed to you. Um, Jesus tells us to pray this way. God, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgiveness is releasing a debt that is owed to you. Number two, forgiveness is removing the control that the offender uh, has over you. If you haven't forgiven them, and you're still bitter against them, they still control you. Number three, forgiveness is giving a gift to yourself and to the offender. You can move on. <laughs> you can let go of some of the stress and some of the anxiety, some of the haunting. Number four, forgiveness is forsaking revenge. In Romans 12, 19, God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. What you're not saying is I get to be the judge, I get to be the vigilante, um, but instead I'm gonna leave it in the hands of a perfect and fair and just judge. Number five, forgiveness is an ongoing process. I wish it were one and done, I really do. Uh, you forgive them once, but you're gonna find that that hurt comes back and you're not sure even what triggers it sometimes, but the old wounds start bleeding and, and you're gonna need to forgive them again. People came to Jesus and asked like, how many times should we forgive our enemies? And he said, 70 times seven. Or in other words, keep on, keep on forgiving them. And number six, forgiveness is even wanting good for your offender. I think you'll know that you've forgiven someone when, when your hope is that they come to the Lord um, your hope is that they would be blessed. So here's some things that forgiveness is not. And I, I think this is important. Forgiveness is not denying that sin has occurred uh, or somehow that you diminish its impact. Oh, you know, nothing happened. It's not a big deal. No, it was a big deal. Uh, God had to die for that sin. And number two, forgiveness is not enabling sin. If, if your spouse, for instance, is an addict, or a thief or an abuser, you are not called to excuse or enable or ignore that. Forgiveness is not uh, covering up crimes committed against us. Forgiving someone and calling the police um, are not contradictory. You better believe that um, here at NAC, uh, 
if a woman is hit, if children are assaulted, uh, the police will be called. And you can, stand, you can send somebody to jail and still forgive them because that's what consequences may require. It's what justice may require. Number three, and this is important, forgiveness is not necessarily a response to an apology. Well, they never said sorry. Yeah, they may never say sorry. And they may never be sorry. They may die without apologizing. They may move away. You know what? Forgive them anyways. Uh, number four, forgiveness is not forgetting. Uh, many religious people like to quote Jeremiah 31, 34, where it says, I will remember their sins no more. And they'll you know, sort of say it with a glibness that's kind of inappropriate. Well, God doesn't remember, so, so neither should you. You should just forget about it. Listen, God is perfectly omniscient. God is all-knowing. There's not a list of things that God used to know. Now, God chooses not to see our identity in light of what we've done, but rather in light of what Jesus has done for us. So to forgive is to say, that's, that's not always on the forefront of my mind. That's not how I will define you and how I interact with you as though you were someone with no hope. Uh, number five, forgiveness is not the same as trust. Husband commits adultery, wife says she forgives him. Do they pick up where things used to be? No, uh, because a great withdrawal of trust has been taken from their account. And trust is gained slowly and it's lost quickly. And so forgiving someone is not a full return to complete trust necessarily. Uh, number six, forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation. It takes one person to repent and another to forgive and then there's reconciliation. So it takes two people to reconcile. All you can do is what you can do. And, and elsewhere, Paul says, um, insofar as it is possible with you, live at peace with others. So what he's saying is put your hand out, leave it out. And if they don't respond, you're not reconciled, but, but you've done what you can and your conscience should be clear. Um, so forgiveness is not necessarily reconciliation, but it is an invitation to reconciliation. So two questions in closing. You ready for them? Who do you need to forgive? You knew that was coming, didn't you? Because forgiven people forgive. Number two, who needs to forgive you? That's a little more surprising, isn't it? You know, we hear a sermon like this and because we're wired to be a little self-righteous and self-centered, we think of all the people who should apologize to us. We tend not to think of the people that we need to apologize to. So who have you sinned against? And if they heard this message, it would be your face they'd be thinking of. It would be your name that would come to mind. How will you repent? How will you extend a hand to them? That's, uh, there's a part of me, I suppose, that's kind of glad I'm not in the same room with you because I know, I know this is a tough word and I know it's an awkward topic. And I know too that God maybe wants to lovingly convict 
uh, those who are living in unforgiveness. In a moment, uh, we're going to take communion together. And as we do, we're remembering the broken body and the blood of Jesus. And we're not just forgiven. We're actually forgiven through the death of Jesus Christ. Apart from Christ, there is no forgiveness of sin. So if you're watching and you're non-Christian, you can be forgiven if you turn from sin and trust in Christ. So I invite you to even do that right now. Um, you don't need to be in front of a real live pastor or in front of a real live anybody. You just need to be in front of a real live God and confess your sin and believe that he is faithful to forgive you and begin a new life. And for those of you who are Christians, sometimes communion can be a bit of a routine. Um, maybe today as you do it at home, it'll take on new life. I just ask that you remember, I am forgiven through the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And his word to me from the cross is, Father, forgive them. So as you partake of communion, you're identifying that Jesus died for you and that you're forgiven in him. And if you're thinking of someone that you're unreconciled with, uh, Paul tells the Corinthian church that before we even take communion, we should actually reconcile with that person. So maybe you could even take that opportunity. Maybe it's someone in your house right now. Um, maybe you need to seek someone out. And if not resolve everything right now, at least take the step and say, look, we need to talk. And I'm promising now in the sight of God that, that we'll resolve this. We'll, we'll put some water on this fire instead of kindling. And lastly, I want you to think about this fact. Um, some of you right now are gonna have maybe the hardest, most emotionally exhausting, difficult conversations in the history of your life. And it could also be one of the most glorious, redemptive, greatest ministry moments of your life as well. That, that once you are forgiven, and have offered forgiveness, you'll be able to share this story, encourage others with it. This hard season um, could actually be glorious, glorious opportunity for God. I wanna pray for you. I'm gonna ask that you at home just grab a, a cracker, slice of bread, a bit of juice, doesn't have to be grape juice, doesn't have to be wine. We um, want to participate symbolically as we remember the Lord's Supper. Father God, I thank you for these people, the people of Nac. I pray for those who have sinned, that they would repent, that they would apologize to those that they've sinned against, and that they would experience forgiveness. And God, I know that when we're hurt, we want a big fire. We know the, the people that are just walking around with big cords of wood looking for fires. So Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for our church. I pray for our families and our youth. I pray against the enemy, his servants and their works and effects. I pray against his opportunity to seek a foothold 
through bitter people. Lord, fill us with your spirit to give us the power to forgive. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that we are forgiven. We thank you for this great invitation to forgive others because forgiven people forgive. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. As we worship, I invite you to worship along and you'll be prompted to take communion together. Amen.